welcome to another episode of the Unmasked Podcast. I've got David Zweig here. He's a, uh, a freelance writer, frequent contributor to a lot of major publications. He's an author of the book Invisibles, uh, The Power of Anonymous Work in an Age of Relentless Self-Promotion. Uh, he's been a, a frequent critic of a lot of, uh, of COVID policies to some extent. So I wanted to sit down with David today and get his thoughts on uh, a few different things. So David, thanks so much for doing this. Welcome and, and thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to get your thoughts first and uh, on, you know, kind of your initial reactions to COVID as the pandemic unfolded, um, you know, early on March, February, March 2020. Were you concerned about it? Were you skeptical about the the lethality of the, the policies? You know, what were your thoughts as it uh, everything kind of unfolded? Yeah, I, I was, um, I think January, February, I was definitely on the spectrum uh, more toward the side of being nervous. Um, I am a little embarrassed to admit, I even like wiped some of our stuff down (laughs) that came, came to the house. Um, but I would say by somewhere the end of March or April, um, I shifted, um, once I actually started doing some research, um, it, and, and I was never particularly worried about my kids, even from the very beginning, because the data that came out of China in February showed that kids were at extremely low risk, um, you know, overall. So, you know, I, I wasn't like, this is a slam dunk. We're hundred percent certain, but there was no reason to believe that they would be falsifying, you know, that data in some manner, you know, as far as age stratification, um, for whatever other, you know, weird things that could be accused, you know, um, you know, of China doing, you know, sort of fudging that around kids would just be weird. So I had every reason to believe that that was true. Um, So I was never overly worried about kids, although my sort of like initial concerns for myself or my wife or people in general were, I guess, a little bit higher. But then, you know, in a fairly dramatic fashion, those fears began to unwind um, the more and more you know, time that went on by the time we reached April, for sure. Yeah. What, so was there something that you, a specific that you noticed early on that said, oh, this, this isn't quite as bad as we thought it was going to be, or, you know, I mean, I, I brought this up before, but the World Health Organization initially was saying something like three and a half percent of people that got COVID were going to die. You know, was there something that, that jumped out at you that was like, that, that's not going to be what this turns out to be like? Yeah, um, I think there were a few things. So one was seeing some of the early data from China. Two was, um, and and I'm writing about this in in the book that I'm working on um, about. So you didn't put that in your uh, intro for me there, Ian. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I'm writing a book about American schools during the pandemic. And, and, And so one of the things that really impacted me was uh, and I live um, in New York, New York State. I'm about a half hour or so north of of the city. And um, we were told, as everyone was told, you know, everyone needs to stay home. We need to flatten the curve. And, you know, and part of this staying at home, sheltering in place, whatever you want to call it, of course, also included closing schools. So by the middle of April, um, cases and hospitalizations started dropping pretty dramatically um, in, in New York. Um and I was like, okay, well, I guess uh, the kids are going back to school soon. Right? <laughs> um, we were told we need to flatten the curve. Okay, we flattened it. Excellent. This is great news. Um, so the combination of 
being aware of the data regarding kids, and it's not like I just read this one report from China. You know, this was fairly well reported, yet sort of paradoxically um, ignored, if that makes sense. Like it was sort of a known thing that kids were not at great risk, yet simultaneously there still was like a hysteria around everyone, including kids. So the, both of those things, at least in my observation, were sort of happening at the same time. So the combination of that, plus the fact that we flattened the curve, and I'm like, they lied. I was like, what the fuck is going on here? We were told we just have to flatten the curve. It's flattened, now what? Are my kids supposed to just stay home in perpetuity? Like there's no vaccine on the horizon, like what's going on? So that was sort of my you know, initial um, reactions. And, and then I guess maybe the third thing is, which sort of ties into both of these is, I started seeing some stuff on Twitter. There's a guy named Zach Bissonette who um, we knew each other very loosely. We both had um, the same publisher um, for some uh, earlier books that he had written and that I had, had written. So maybe that's how we initially got connected. But he was writing some skeptical things um, and some other people were you know, writing things as well. So that also, that's kind of the the power of Twitter that like, I wasn't really seeing stuff in any of the, my normal news sources, but I was seeing it there. And then from there, that sort of led me to start thinking differently and to start um, finding alternative sources of information. It's very interesting. And I think that, that, that path, a lot of people took that path, I think, especially early on. Uh, so you mentioned the book and I was actually going to ask you about this. So that's, uh, that's good timing. And so I, I understand you're, you are writing a book essentially about the harms of school closures and, um, and the impacts of school closures. So I wanted to, you know, I'm, I'm sure, obviously I'm sure you're still working on it and you know, please feel free if you don't want to give away too much, but <laughs> what, you know, what are your goals with it and, and what's the story you're hoping to tell with the book? Yeah, that's, that's that's a big question. I think, you know, in broad strokes, um, and I don't know if any of the people listening to this have, you know, read some of the articles that I've written over the last two years. Um, I, I think a large part of the story about American schools was not really told um, in most of the major media. And um, I tried to counter that myself to the degree that I was able to do so. Um, and, you know, in, in places like New York Magazine and The Atlantic and Wired. But um, I think it's really, really important as, you know, presumably there's going to be a ton of books written about the pandemic over the next, you know, decade, I'm sure there'll be tons of them. And just since I've been specifically focused on kids and schools, and it, it seemed seeing what has already happened in the regular sort of, you know, magazine slash newspapers and stuff, and how that's been covered, I felt zero confidence that there would be any books covering the American schools situation during the pandemic from the angle that I had been covering it um, for The Atlantic and elsewhere. So I, I just think there needs to be a reckoning of sorts. And, um, and you know, I'm approaching this, you know, um, to my mind, as objectively as I possibly can. Of course, I have a viewpoint, but Every journalist has a viewpoint on everything, and to pretend otherwise is is just dishonest. So it's not that I don't have a viewpoint, but I really just want to present it as, as a history. Here, this thing happened, you know, and, and why did it happen? So the the thing that I'm particularly interested in is decision making, and mm -hmm. how were the decisions made by policymakers, 
by, you know, whether at the federal level, whether it's, you know, public health people, whether it's a superintendent of schools or even individual parents, how were decisions made that led to the circumstance where tens of millions of children in America were not in school, um, either not in school at all, or, you know, we're in these so-called hybrid programs when counterparts in Europe were in there every day. How did this happen? And I want to, you know, and I asked that question, not, not rhetorically, but in a sincere sense, I want to explore how did that happen? Yeah, that's, it's, it's, possibly the most important question of the pandemic really because i think it's it's the one that's going to have the longest lasting uh, you know in my opinion harms and and potential impacts down the road unfortunately um so we'll look forward to that when is it going to be released well so to 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 your point about what, part of the problem yeah. is i'm taking a really really long time with this so um if my editor doesn't kill me, um, I'll still be able to do it. But I keep pushing my debt past my deadline. So I'm not exactly sure. It'll be a couple okay. of years until um, it comes out, which on on the one hand pains me greatly um, because I know there's some other books, you know, on the pandemic. And, you know, even um, Anya, um, the comments at NPR, she has a book coming out related to schools, though. Um, I think hers has like a very different sort of focus. Um, so I'm eager for it to come out. But I think... There will be a value in having something be more comprehensive, but come out when there's a little bit more distance, you know, from, from this and people can view it less through like the heat of, you know, of the moment and of emotion and instead hopefully read it with more of a cool sort of, um, uh, you know, lens um, when there's a little bit more distance from, from the event. That, that's assuming this actually does unwind. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, who knows? Right. I, I'm hopeful that the, uh, at least the school closures part of this is, is behind us, but, uh, you know, you, you never can tell. Um, well, to, to your, you know, your claim to fame, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, people, at least on Twitter, I don't know how much I've heard about this. There's a little bit from public health people, you know, even outside the Twitter realm, I'm not sure about policymakers. Maybe you know about this. Maybe schools won't be closed. Maybe that's not going to be a thing though. You never know. But it seems like what might still possibly happen, or at least certainly in some kind of like really blue, you know, state areas like San Francisco, you know, pockets of California and, you know, New York, is that if there's a surge, quote unquote, that they're going to try to reinstitute um, different mitigation measures. So they'll try to bring masks back, you know, and, you know, maybe some other things. So even if the schools aren't closed, there's no, so I don't know if you've seen anything on that. So that's the one thing where I worry there could be a long tail um, uh, from the pandemic. Yeah, I completely agree. And I have definitely noticed that in statements and, you know, uh, Randy Weingarten, who's obviously a very influential teachers union leader, um, kind of basically said, you know, these studies are going to be important for how we roll out guidance going forward. And that was just kind of depressing to hear that. It's, they're just, you know, we, in my opinion, we just can't have any of this guidance. It just can't exist anymore. We need normal schooling forever now. But um, I kind of wanted to ask you about that a bit more because, and you mentioned this briefly, but you wrote this really, really important article, in my opinion, for New York Magazine. It was last August. Um, kind of about the science of masking kids in schools and uh, it's lowercase science, not the science. Um, and I, I think it really kind of moved the discussion towards whether masking in schools was justified or not. And if anybody listening hasn't read it yet, I encourage you to do so. But, um, you know, walk us through what it was like to write a piece like that for a publication that has 
probably been more pro restrictions and, you know, was there any pushback or, or feedback you got that was concerning and, you know, what, what led you to, to write that piece in the first place? Mm, yeah, those, those are good questions. Um, you know, I would say that most of the pieces I've written, um, you know, which have been for quote unquote, you know, sort of prestige um, media and mainstream publications, most of them have been of an angle that is contrary to what most of the sort of, you know, elite media um, had been reporting. So each of these things that I've written has been a challenge, you know, to push through. I, I you know, I sort of joke with people, but, but it's true. You know, I think part of my skills or ability in this has been my ability to, to sort of like see some things that are happening and to, you know, do the necessary research on them. But I'll tell you, a whole other thing is actually, even if you are an amazing researcher and you write something really well, the whole other uh, task if, is actually pushing it through um, and getting a publication to, to, you know, to buy into what you're saying. So I've been really fortunate that um, my editors at these different places, at Wired, at New York, and at The Atlantic, you know, the, the personal editors that I work with have been incredibly supportive. They trust me. Um, and I and I think I'm a really meticulous reporter. So um, this is a long-winded answer to you, but, um, but I think that has enabled me to, when you have an editor who is not beholden to groupthink, even though they may be at a, you know, at a publication that tends toward a more mainstream, you know, conventional view on certain things. If, if you present them with something that is well argued, that has evidence there, that has links to, you know, this, et cetera, et cetera, and has experts quoted in there. If you present something to them, um, to their credit, they're like, hey, this is, um, this is really interesting. And this seems valid, what you're arguing here, you know? Um, so that's kind of, you know, how I've been able to push these things through, including the stuff on masking. I will say getting that initial piece through in August was a challenge. Um, there were some people, um, who were not happy with it. Um, but again, to the credit of New York magazine, um, to the editor in chief and to my, my editor there, um, they stuck by me and they stuck with, you know, again, but it's not out of some sort of loyalty to me personally. It was that I presented information in a way that, that they found persuasive and compelling. And that's what they stuck with. So it wasn't me personally, but they stuck by me because of what I, I you know, what I presented. Um, so it, it, it was it was a weird thing. You know, each of the things I've written, like I keep saying, have gone against sort of the popular narrative. But masks, as you know, you know, are really perhaps the most third rail of all, which is a whole other story. It's kind of interesting why that's the case. Um, and, you know, you could tell me, but, you know, my impression is this really was the first piece in a major publication that took a really, really deep dive into, into the science and into questioning, is this really a good policy? It, I, I agree. It absolutely was. And I think you did a fantastic job with it. I think I told you that at the time even, but it's, um, you know, what, why do you think it has been so contentious? I, I, I think it's, 
I mean, you hit the nail on the head that it has been probably the most contentious issue. But but why do you think that is? Why are people some people so dedicated to it? I mean, obviously, I'm on the other side of things. So I understand that my perspective. But, you know, why do you think it is it is hard to get those stories written in order to get those uh, do those investigations? Well, specifically, as far as masks are concerned, I, I think I've sort of I mean, there are obviously many, many reasons why this may be the case. I think I've settled on you know, and I think about this all the time, but um, I've settled on what I think are the two main reasons. And the, the first one is there is an intuitive sense that like I'm putting this physical barrier in front of my face that it's going to do something. So it's very hard to break that intuition that I think most quote normal people have. You know, I'm not even talking about sort of like pro mask zealots on Twitter. I just mean like a regular person who's like, oh, you know, well, that makes sense. A mask should do something. Um, so I think it's very hard to break that intuition, you know, and then, uh, and then particularly since people, you know, we always see um, surgeons or others wearing a mask. So again, that, that reinforces the idea of like, well, a mask is doing something. Otherwise doctors wouldn't wear them. And so I, I think that's part of it. It's really hard. There's like no amount of data that can mm. persuade people out of that kind of just sort of human intuition. And then, you know, I, I, I the other part of, is this kind of obvious one that I'm going to tell you, there's, it's just a political element that gets bundled into, you know, someone's identity and, you know, what it's like um, the sort of semiotics. It's like, what does a mask represent, you know, and that it's more than just a mask. Um, I, I genuinely believe that that's, you know, a huge part of it. Um, and then there's all these sort of like ancillary answers, which are, you know, related to these two main answers, which is, I think the media has scared the shit out of a lot of people and they, you know, they're not able to think clearly. And even, and so you combine this sort of intuition of like, I look, I have a mask on my face, this must work. And I've seen doctors wear them and I'm really, really frightened. Why wouldn't I do this? Why shouldn't we force kids to do it? Like, why not? You know, like considering how terrible and scary everything is, like, let's just do it. What's the downside? It's so small. It's so small if there is a downside at all. And as you know, there have been plenty of people who argue there's absolutely zero downside of mass. So I think that's what's at play. And it's been fascinating how intractable, you know, <laughs> um, um, this is. Though, and you tell me, and I don't know, but like, I think the ma pro mask zealots, it, it is shrinking. You know, if you go on Twitter, it seems like one thing, but you know, here in New York where I am, you know, they, in, in my town, they got rid of the mask mandate um, for kids in schools. And, you know, the first few days, my kids told me that like maybe 50% of the kids were still wearing masks. By the next week, it was down to like, you know, 30%. Now it's maybe like 20% eventually i mean you can't do this forever so i think eventually i know there are holdouts and i've read about you know people in san francisco and some other places where it's still like a really really high um rate of kids wearing them um regardless of them not being required but i suspect even there you know it's, it, it'll start to wind down they'll just be a little bit or a lot bit slower i i agree to an extent although i i am concerned that like we, like we were saying a second ago about how they could bring these policies back the next time there's a surge or when winter comes that, you know, it'll just kind of be a rolling thing that, that comes back every winter. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm in Southern California, so kind of similar. And it was, uh, when the mass mandate came back last winter, 
pretty much everybody went right back to. I mean, not everybody, but the vast majority of people did. Now, hardly anybody's wearing a mask. But, I, you know, I, I'm, that's my concern is this becomes kind of a, a rolling thing. Well, which uh, is why, if I may, which is why yeah. the type of, you know, work that you've done, I think is so important. Because, it, and, you know, what I've tried to do and some others is that as long as there is the assumption that, um, as long as there's that mass quote unquote work um, to the extent that people believe they work, that then people can still make the argument, well, we there's a surge, we need to bring them back. So one of the things that, um, one of the things that I was very careful to do in my New York article, and, you know, and I subsequently wrote an article for The Atlantic as well about a, a different mass study. Um, and one of the things I was careful to do, and, I, and I'm careful to do this as well, just when I talk with people, is I try to differentiate between masks and a mask mandate. And, mm -hmm. you know, we are dealing with, there may be a study on a mannequin that shows that a mask blocks, you know, X amount of some sort of particle. But that's very different from how human beings function in the world. So I have no doubt that putting a physical barrier over your face blocks some portion of stuff that's getting mm -hmm. into your airway. I, there's, there's no doubt that that happens. But that's a different question from how much a mask mandate works because human beings do not function the same as a mannequin or don't even function the same as a, as you know human participants in like a lab study where they're you know putting masks on or whatever it is and i think that that's kind of the the to me that's that you may think differently but but to me i think that's the biggest difference is is how humans do something versus what a sort of like mechanical test or laboratory you know study may show do you have absolutely. thoughts on that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I agree to an extent. I, I mean, you know, it, it is, uh, I, I, I think it's a, it's a key distinction. I make the distinction a lot between mask mandates and, and actual masks. I think that the, if there were ever going to work, it was never realistic to expect a, the, the entire populace to wear them properly and dispose of them properly. And, and I mean, I, I think that one of the biggest indicators of that is that, uh, you know, you can watch Fauci from early on when he's testifying in front of Congress wearing a mask and he touches it 30 or 40 times in the space of a couple of minutes. And it's like when, when the world's leading public health expert, quote unquote, is, uh, you know, can't, can't use it properly. Uh, how do you expect anybody to do this with any consistency whatsoever when they have no, no training to do it and no instruction how to do it. And yeah, I mean, it, it you can go back and look and see the surgeon general, like rolling up a t-shirt and saying a t-shirt, putting a t-shirt in front of your face is, uh, is going to be effective in preventing the spread of COVID. And you just it, looking back now, it just kind of, it looks crazy, but um, you know, it, it's a, I, I certainly hope that the mandates are not a rolling thing. Although I fear, like you said, and specifically in kind of blue areas, it, it will be, but um, it's, you know, it's, it's a really, I, I agree. It's what I'm trying to do is keep pointing out. We can't, if you give them that kind of inch of, Oh, well masks work and it's just science. There's always going to be a reason to come back to it. Um, what is the but, rebuttal that you get? Like, have you engaged with any people who are very, very, um, you know, strongly, um, you know, in favor of advocating for mask use, you know, and, and the, and the, you know, efficacy of masks, someone like a Julia Raifman or others, have you engaged with any of those people? And like, what sort of rebuttal do they give if you present them with one of your, you know, many, many, 
graphs showing, you know, uh, either where you're comparing two different areas or whether you're showing one area and then, you know, you say, here's where the mask mandate started. And then you see cases, you know, skyrocket after that. What type of, what's like the, what, what sort of response do you get from them? And do you find anything that they say to be remotely, you know, reasonable or, or persuasive? I'm just curious if you've had any like engagements with those people. I have to some extent when, when it's not, kind of credentialism of like, well, who are you and why, you know, why are you allowed to even talk about this? It's it, it some of the, the more legitimate criticisms are things like, well, there's it wasn't just you know mass. There's a lot of other policies that are that can impact this or other different demographic confounders that could influence this. And um, which is fair. And and I, I agree to some extent. But the I think the biggest issue with that is, you know, we were told repeatedly that masks are the most important variable. I mean, not like unimportant one, the important one, the most important one. I mean, the CDC director, former CDC director was was saying that repeatedly and said, you know, they could provide better protection than vaccines. So the point is really, you know, yeah, you could show we had, we reduced business capacity limits to, to 83%, you know, or what are, I'm making up the number, but something, something ludicrous like that. And maybe that could do it. But when you're, we're taking the most important variable and it's the one that has the probably the most significant harms, especially with schools and and uh, in special populations, um, it should be a very clear impact to me. It should be something that you can immediately look at. If I take the labels off, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Thomas Woods, but he did this brilliantly, where he basically did like a quiz. You know, here's two two lines on a chart: which one had the mass mandate and which one didn't. Um, and I would love to see, and I've I've, I've asked uh, some of these <laughs> these experts play this game. Let me know how you do. And, you know, they're obviously they're never going to do it. But if they can't immediately tell which place had the mask mandate and which one didn't, it kind of tells you something to me. So, um, yeah, I'm just wondering if there's any sort of like legitimate, you know, so I, I guess what they would say is um, is sort of what you touched on. Maybe it's like, oh, well, there's lots of confounders. You can't just compare to, you know, two schools or two towns with each other. There's too many other variables. And your response to that is, look, you may be right that it's not, you know, appropriate to only compare, you know, one country to another. There's, you know, there's so many, you know, things at play. However, when you see this over and over and over and over again, so I guess, because the way I think about it, when I see your, your tweets with your stuff is like any one of them on their own can be compelling, but it doesn't tell you everything. But if there are 50 you know, different comparisons of countries or states or schools or whatever, or a hundred comparisons. And and you can if you can find 50 or a hundred examples where the mass appeared to do nothing, then that starts to be more persuasive. So that's the way I think about it. If you tried to publish one study based on comparing, you know, whatever, Germany to France or whatever it may be, or Germany. And then once they instituted the mask mandate and it didn't do anything, you know, or at least not noticeably, you know, I could see someone criticizing that. But to me, it's sort of the totality of, of all of these, you know, non effects put together that I, that I think is, is very, very hard to, to ignore. Exactly. Exactly. That's the goal is it's when you look at it as a holistic whole, where you can 
can go and compare it. You know, I've, I've done this with Washington, D.C. in the D.C. metro area and Northern Virginia versus D.C. versus Maryland. The numbers are exactly the same, all of them different jurisdictions with different policies. And to me, that's one of the best idea uh, examples of this is which is, you know, again, this is the same geographic location. Obviously, there are demographic differences even between the that little area up there. But, uh, you know, it's a pretty good pretty good comparison. It's about as good as we're going to get really because of, of how close they are and how similar they are in a lot of ways. So let me ask um, you this then. Ian. So um, I, I was able to testify before Congress about like mitigation measures um, in schools and whatnot. And Ashish Jha also testified in the same hearing. And he took great issue with, um, with what I had said and argued, which was, you know, that the you know, this isn't appropriate. These mask mandates in the schools really, you know, aren't aren't bringing benefit, and there's harms, and you know, and the evidence is like incredibly weak. Um, you know that that they're doing anything at all. Um, and his response, I mean, we, you know, we weren't directly communicating with each other, but then he was questioned, and as a sort of response to me, he said, "You know, Mr. Zweig or anybody, the way these people do this is." They pick apart one study and he's like, you can pick apart any study. It doesn't matter what it's on. You can always find errors. He said, but here in the public health community, what we do is we look at the totality of evidence. And, you know, so you may have written your article where you dissected this one study and you were nitpicking and blah, blah, blah. But when you look at the totality of the evidence together, there is a consensus. It's very clear that masks do offer a benefit. You know, and that's, I mean, it's like, so what do you think when you hear something like, like, I, I don't even, it's hard to even approach <laughs> that type of um, statement. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. <laughs> oh, it's, it's a really good question. And it's uh, I, very depressing when you hear people like that, that have the credentials like that and the platform he has, especially now uh, saying things like that, because if you go back and look at the totality of the evidence literally on April 2nd of 2020, you know, one day before the CDC and the public health bureaucracy decided that there was a consensus that masks work, there was the, the consensus of the exact opposite, you know, and, and I think it's, I, I wrote this in my book uh, and it's very important. I brought it up a million times, but, you know, on, on March 31st, Fauci was sent an email from one of the employees at the NAIAD saying, you know, we reviewed all the high quality randomized controlled trials on masking and all of it so showed there would be no significant benefit. So, Three days later, they all come out and say everybody should wear a mask. So to me, what that tells me. Was and, and it really three days? Oh, because I, I, I know that there was a thing with the email. He emailed some regular person who had like a mom or someone had emailed mm -hmm. him and he wrote back. And then he also had the thing on 60 Minutes. But then it was like roughly what, like a month later when he came out or the CDC came out. You're saying there was actually a much tighter timeline than, than what I'm imagining it was only he as as recently as like just a few days before a public switch he was still saying otherwise is, is that right exactly yeah that's it's, remarkable it's, okay. yeah it's in it's in those same that buzzfeed release of all of his emails where right. uh, you were you're absolutely right in february he was telling people privately i don't recommend you wear a mask and here's mm -hmm. why mm -hmm. um while saying publicly on 60 minutes masks don't work and then Mar as late as march 31st all of the 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 evidence that he was sent was said we don't think masks are going to make a big difference April 3rd, the CDC says everybody should wear a cloth mask. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that, well, that he didn't publicly state anything on March 31st, right? Or is that, is no. that he may have been sent information. His last public thing may have been like the 60 minutes thing or something else where he publicly and then there was a gap between then. And so I'm just trying to game this out here for a moment. Like, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so 
does he have sort of plausible deniability where he's like, look, yes, I did say that on 60 Minutes on, you know, March, whatever. And then X number of weeks went by before, you know, he or, or you know, the CDC or NIAID then changed their public stance. And then what I read was there's like, you know, fact check, you know, dot org or whatever. They're like, it is misleading and false to say that, you know, Fauci flip flop because, and here's the key. Um, they apparently, they said like, well, new evidence came in or, you know, the, this. So what I, so in your book, I don't, do you get into this? Is there any, is there any evidence at all that a, a study came in or that perhaps some of these public health people were privy to some data that no one else had seen, you know, from, you know, somewhere uh, in between, you know, whatever, the first week of March and the beginning of April that would, that they could plausibly say change their minds? Was there like data, you know, in Europe or, or Asia or something? Or yeah. no, there's nothing. I, I'm not aware of anything. Yeah. The best that I could find was that they were, they, they said later on that they were concerned about asymptomatic spread. Um, but I wrote about this in the book and it's something I've, I've mentioned before previously too, but it's like, it, you know, the asymptomatic spread thing, um, the flu also spreads asymptomatically. So they're trying to say that that was the big difference between the flu and COVID when all the studies that have been conducted on the flu showed masks didn't make any difference. Um, doesn't really hold up because they oh, both spread asymptomatically. So, so, so their sort of defense of changing their position, your understanding is primarily wasn't that like, oh, some important study came in you know, in the, in the, in the gap between the 60 minutes interview and, you know, like April 3rd, it's that they started getting more information about asymptomatic spread. And then that, but as, but as you're saying, that's almost like a non sequitur, like, well, who cares? Like asymptomatic mm -hmm. spread or not, like either you think the masks work or they don't, it doesn't, yeah. like, it doesn't matter whether you're asymptomatic, right? I mean, like, so that doesn't even seem to be related to that point. Exactly. Well, and also the in, in Fauci's kind of private correspondence that you brought up in, in February, mm -hmm. you know, why he told people, I don't recommend that you wear a mask because it doesn't really provide any protection. And, you know, it's it's not really it's not really that effective, which is exactly what he said on 60 Minutes, not, you know, and this is privately. So he could have told these people, look, you know, we're trying to protect supply for healthcare workers. So we're not recommending masks for the general public right now because we want, you know, we want to maintain our stockpiles or whatever. But I do believe that masks have some efficacy and that it would be better if you wore one and you might prevent you spreading it to other people if you potentially have it. But right. he doesn't say he that. Doesn't, <laughs> he didn't say masks like do nothing in those things, right? He just sort of like downplayed the, the, the any sort of benefit, right? I mean, I'd have to, to go back. You know that I'm sure you yeah. know this stuff very well. Um, what he to said, some but, extent. But I, I don't also, know if this is like boring for people to listen to, it, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but I think it's, it, but in, in some ways it's incredibly important because this, everything hinges on this in some way. Mm -hmm. It's like, what did public health officials learn between Fauci's 60 minutes interview and when the six, you know, when the CDC, you know, changes guidance. And then when Fauci went around, you know, saying, hold on, everybody, you should wear masks. What, what information did they get in that sp span of time? So, you know, it's, uh, I'm sort of up to my, you know, as we're talking about this, I'm like, it's interesting to me, but I'm like, are most people like, this is boring or is this like, but, but I think it's right. And so yeah. everything hinges on that. What information did they get in that span of like three weeks? Everything comes down to that in my mind. Right. I mm -hmm. like, they need to show me what they got. Cause saying, oh, we learned that there's more asymptomatic spread. That's, that's irrelevant. Yeah. Like, that's, that, that's not that that has nothing to do with masks working or not working. Um, 
So it it is, you know, what's weird. Like, how is this, how is it even possible that this isn't, I mean, it is a big thing, obviously amongst a certain segment of the population, but like, how is this not like, just like a bigger thing in general? Like, why aren't, I want, I haven't, you know, I should talk to quote, like some regular people and ask them, I wonder what their response would be. I haven't really talked about this, but have you, like, I would love to talk to some sort of like, you know, regular professional class um, liberals whom I know, you know, who, you know, believe in mass or something and say, what do you think happened? What do you, you know, why do you think, you know, I think they might say, well, you know, they were lying. It was like a noble lie, you know, because they didn't want anyone to, to like, you know, they didn't want people to like use up all the mass in the beginning or something. I Mm -hmm. guess that might be one response, but like, even that's like, you know, completely absurd. You know, if that actually was 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 what happened to like just flat out lie and say something doesn't work because you're afraid people are going to misbehave. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Um, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but I'm like, I, I don't know how much do you in your book do you get into? And I apologize, I haven't read it yet. But like, how much do you get into the sort of like psychology and sociology behind all this? Because that to me is is so fascinating. I don't really at all. And I can put, okay. but I completely agree that it is fascinating. And that's kind of, uh, something I'll I'd pick like up to the, the baton on that in my book. Yeah, exactly. You haven't covered it. Okay. Yeah, no, it's really, I completely agree. It's very, very important to look at this. I think it is important. And I think it, I, my personal view is that nothing changed. And I think that that's what that email kind of shows is that there wasn't any new high quality data or evidence to suggest that it would make a difference. I think they just wanted to do something. And, and kind of like you mentioned earlier, it, it was, a they could, sh- for people, it, it made some sense. They were like, oh, well, if I put this thing in front of my face, it's obviously going to stop some stuff coming out. But uh, that's not how we make, that's not how we should be making decisions. And but in, so, but in Fauci's mind, so, right. So I understand for, we were talking about like regular people, um, you know, if, you know, and then I, I sort of, was, you know, hypothesizing, you know, these sort of two main things. I think most people, they're just, their intuition says like, hey, I have this physical barrier. It should, you know, do something, you know, and they're not, seeing the disconnect between that and actual human behavior. Um, and then also the political thing. So that's regular people. But what do you think actually was in the minds of Fauci, you know, or some of the other public health officials who clearly said one thing and then changed? I mean, like, like I, I wish, I mean, there's no way for you to know or for me to know, like, I just, I'm so fascinated. I would love to know, like, does he actually believe that they work? Did he convince himself or does he know in the back of his mind, this is all bullshit or something, you know? And just like, I mean, I, I would just love to know. I'm so, so curious yeah. <laughs> to know like what he actually thinks. I, I, you know, in the end, it doesn't matter, you know, what he thinks because the, the policy is the policy and the public statements are what they are. But I just find it fascinating because I'm always curious what these people in power quote unquote, actually think, you know, I think that about Walensky all the time. Um, you know, when I, um, I, you know, I did this huge takedown of this, um, Arizona mask study, um, which like I devoted like a, just an absurd amount of my life to, to, which I didn't mean to, but you just fall in the rabbit hole, you know, the more and more, um, bullshit you uncover and it just gets deeper and deeper until you're wearing these sort of like, you know, wading boots and I'm like <laughs> up to my waist. Um, and, and, and the whole time I just kept thinking, I'm like, does Walensky actually believe this? And then she went on TV. And even after my article came out, which, you know, I think like very, very clearly showed a number and it's not just, 
not just to quibble with the methodology of that study, because that's one thing. Every study, you know, people, different academics, and not that I'm an academic, but academics will, you know, critique each other. This was, I found actual errors in the data. That's different from having a, you know, criticism about, oh, I think you didn't account for X, Y, or Z confounding variable, blah, blah. This is your actual numbers are different from the official numbers I've gotten from the state of Arizona and the county yeah. of Maricopa. This is a serious problem. How do you have different numbers? And um, so anyway, sorry, going, going off on a tangent here, but the, but then after I presented the CDC with that evidence where I'm like, hey, I, I have like really different numbers than you guys. Yeah. <laughs> and, I have, and I got them from the state. Like, what do you have to say about this? You know, and their response was F you. Um, <laughs> you know, I was like, can you please share the data set? And, and they wrote back, there are no errors. It was like, <laughs> it was remarkable. It was like one mm. of the most remarkable experiences of my life. It's when like whatever little modicum of, of like naivete left in my like soul was just completely demolished at that point. But um, all the, all this is to say after the article came out, you know, clearly, you know, Walensky was alerted about it and, you know, it was discussed at the CDC. These are, you know, significant discrepancies in the data itself, blah, blah. blah. Um, she continued to talk about the study anyway. And, mm -hmm. what I, and like, I just, so similar to the Fauci thing, like, I just, I, I would love to know what she's actually thinking. Is it that she's like super busy and has like 50 different things going on and just some sort of like, you know, underling tells her about the study and then she just takes their word for it? Does she actually look at it and she thinks it's kind of questionable, but she believes something else more broadly. So she's saying it anyway. Like, I, I don't know. Sorry to hijack the interview if I've done that. Like, these are the things that I think about all the time. I'm just so curious to know, like, how much these people actually believe what they're saying. Oh, no, it's it's a it's a fascinating thing to consider. And I completely agree. It is one of the most important questions of the pandemic, really, is, is do they really believe this stuff? And I think it I, I mean, my personal view is that they initially they kind of once they committed to changing their minds, they had to go for it because they couldn't change back. You know, once Fauci was out there saying it doesn't work, once he committed to saying it works and everybody has to do it, there was no way for him to, to change his mind again. He couldn't go back and say, actually, you know, we got this one wrong. And and I really do just from the conversations I've had with some people that have you know, been fairly influential and talked to some fairly influential people there, there's been, a, my sense has been that they, they, they view themselves almost as more kind of political appointees at that level than they do is, is like getting into the weeds on the science quote unquote. Um, and so their, their goal is to kind of promote a policy as opposed to, uh, you know, really delving deeply into the data and trying to understand whether or not the recommendations are the right ones or the, or the wrong ones. And a lot of times the data they're using, like you say, is, is dramatically flawed or is exactly the same data that someone like me or just a random layperson is using to point out that their policies haven't really worked. It's, it's no different. It's the same data. And that was one thing I was surprised by. I thought they would have a lot more, you know, I don't know, special or limited or, or exclusive information that we just weren't privy to. And, and that's just not the case. But well, um, the well, the interesting thing is, you know, like at least with this Arizona study and stuff, it's like, well, if you do have special information, share it. This isn't like the Department of Defense. This mm -hmm. isn't, you know, like the NSA. This is public health. If it, like, yeah. None of that should be proprietary. That's insane. So when you have a journalist coupled with, you know, a, a bunch of like highly credentialed, um, you know, uh, public health, you know, type of researchers who are contacting you saying like, hey, these are discrepancies, just share your data set. So we, we can, it can be verified. And the answer is no, 
I mean, that's deeply, deeply problematic. So even if it is the case that they have some sort of special secret <laughs> data on on um, on mass working that they're not checked, that's insane. I mean, mm -hmm. but my what here's what I've come up with. I think some percentage of these people um, knew they were kind of lying a little bit in the beginning. But what happens is it's sort of human nature. You be, you sort of like convince yourself of it. And I think this is all conjecture, but it's fun for me to do just because I can't stop myself from thinking <laughs> about this. I think that they actually are all true believers now. Mm -hmm. I think like when you stake so much of like your, you know, professional identity stuff on this, like, I, I think they deeply, deeply believe at this point. Like you can just, you just sort of on a subconscious level, you just convince yourself. Um, and then, you know, and I'm probably going to offend some listeners here, you know, but there is a, like a component of it that it to me is analogous to religion that, you know, if you confront them with, I had, um, I had DM'd with Megan Rainey, you know, this, <clears throat> she's this emergency room physician who's also like a really, uh, you, I'm, I know, you know who she is, I'm sure. Oh, but yeah. like, you know, she's very prominent, you know, sort of public health pundit now, um, huge Twitter following stuff. And, you know, and I was corresponding with her, I was like, hey, Megan, send me the three best studies you can think of on that show that mask mandates work in schools. S send me the best. You know, I wanted to steal man, you know, this thing, you know, when I was working on this New York Magazine piece, I was like, I need to look at every fucking thing possible about mass, you know, in the real world being effective. So I was like, hey, let me contact her. She's super pro mask. Send me the best stuff you've got, you know? And so she just sends me back, like, I think it was like the Wisconsin study, you know, in MMWR. I'm like, that doesn't say anything about mass working, you know, or maybe it was like the ABC collective, the, you know, the North Carolina Duke thing, you know, or I'm like, there's no control group, Megan. Yeah. So she kept sending me something. And then I would write back. I'm like, Megan, there's no control. That doesn't say this. And then, and then she would send me something else. I'm like, this doesn't even add that. You know, it was like really weird. And I'm like, you are incredibly vocal about, you know, advocating for the use of mass, you know, overall and in particular in schools. And when I'm asking you to send me the best shit you've got, and you're sending me stuff where there's no control group. You're sending me stuff. Now, I think what her, so anyway, I say all this because I think this then comes into the sort of like religious true believer realm where it's just like, they don't have to think it through. And if you confront them with, with something that goes against it, there's a sort of compartmentalization that occurs, you know, in people's minds where they're just like, I believe, you know, they would yeah. never say that as a scientist or public health person, but the equivalent of quote, I believe is let me send you a bunch of studies that don't actually say <laughs> what, mm -hmm. what I purport them to say, you know, that's the equivalent of just like, I believe in, in X, even if there's no evidence behind it. So it's like, um, I, I just, it's, it's very fascinating. And I think when I was corresponding with Megan, what they would say is, you know, if I'm like, there's no control group, there's no this, or it's like, how do you know, blah, blah, blah. They would say, it, I think it then reverts back to this sort of, to the um, Ashish Jha thing. It's not about this one study. Fine, who gives a shit if there's not a control group? But if you look at the totality of studies together, blah, 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 blah. I think that ends up becoming a sort of like circular argument. It all comes back to, but of course, any real scientist would say, a whole lot of insufficient and shitty evidence does not equate to <laughs> like convincing yeah. evidence. You could like you could have 
a thousand studies that are shitty and don't actually say what you think they say and putting them together. Quantity does not, you know, equate with uh, quality, you know, I guess. So Mm -hmm. I think that's the fundamental flaw in that, um, in that, that sort of position. But I think about it a lot because I'm trying to, I'm always asking myself, I'm, I I suppose you're not at this point because like your charts are so persuasive, but I'm always asking myself, am I missing something? What am I missing? Was this, maybe Ashish Jha is right. Maybe like, you know, each of these studies has some errors in it, but when you look at all of them together, they do kind of like point toward mass, you know, in schools or other places working, you know? So I'm always asking myself that, but it's like, but once you look at the studies, they don't actually say that. They don't, mm-hmm. you know, it's yeah. just what's interesting, Ian, is, and I'm sure you've read, you know, all of them is, and, and tell me if you've noticed this, is that, and it's not just with masks, by the way, um, that the the study will show one thing. You look at the tables, you look at the actual data in there, and then here's this bizarre phenomenon that, is, that occurs, that in the abstract, you know, and in the conclusion, the authors will then characterize the results of the study, the findings, they'll characterize them differently from what you're actually reading. And I've Mm -hmm. seen this time and again, it's with mass, I've seen it with uh, multiple things related to the vaccines and other stuff. Have you noticed that too, or am I like crazy? Oh no, that's a hundred percent right. And uh, I mean, I think the best example of it, and it, it ties back into what you're saying about how you know, they, they kind of just are true believers and believe, I, I think it's a lot of, it's appealing to their own authority, which is, you know, a circular logical fallacy, but basically they, they, one of the best examples was the CDC study where they said uh, 56% reduction in, uh, you know, but people getting COVID if they wore a cloth mask uh, and out of the, it was a study that came out a couple months ago about California and next to the, the number is a little asterisk saying not statistically significant. And they published that graphic with a, a not statistically significant result. And you just go, how could you do that? I mean, how could anybody that that considers themselves a scientist publish a result in a, in a headline like that, what they know is going to get picked up and used by the media when it's not a result that can be even considered significant? I mean, it, it's just, I'm not a scientist, but it's it's literally science 101. I mean, I, I, it's embarrassing to me, but yeah, so there it, was this, the ends justify yeah. the means. Yeah, I mean, it's that it's just it's very, very interesting how it's like, you know, you read the the Georgia um, schools mass study or the Arizona one and like roughly the text somewhere at the end, they're like tag at the end is like, you know, dot, dot, dot. Therefore, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it is clear that mass are better. You know, it's like that's actually not what the data shows at all. Yeah. You know, but there's always it, there's there's a I guess what's interesting is here at I don't know, just talking to you about this helps sort of like clarify some of like maybe what's going on with these people in their minds. Here's here's maybe what's happening with the Shish Jha and Megan Rainey and these people. Okay, you ready? There's a whole bunch of studies that are kind of shitty. They don't actually show, you know, what what they what these people think they show. But these people, because most people don't read the fucking studies, they just, you know, look at the abstract or whatever. They they're glossing over the table, maybe and he's going to the table. And but what they are reading is this editorializing that happens in all of these studies where they're they're reading those couple sentences where the authors characterize the findings you know in, in conclu- make a conclusion on them that doesn't actually match with what the data show in their study but that's what they so if you're a shish ja perhaps or someone else and you're looking at maybe he you know he's probably is keeping up with the various studies as they come out 
but he's a busy guy. He's in charge of, you know, I'm giving, I'm saying, and I'm not saying this in like a snide way. I mean, like legitimately, like not everyone has time to look at this shit. So, mm -hmm. you know, in his defense, perhaps he's looking at an abstract maybe, or other people are, and they're seeing, and, and then you read the author's sort of like conclusion that says something, well, you're going to walk away with the impression that, you know, you're going to agree with the author's conclusion. So I wonder if the real problem is how these studies, it's not the studies themselves, and maybe it's not even some of the public health people for believing them, although that, you know, they partially are at fault. You should read the whole thing, but rather the problem is maybe there shouldn't be I want, imagine if there's study, imagine if like a new format and like I'm outside of my depth here, I'm not an academic. So maybe people will tell me like 20 reasons why this is totally stupid. Imagine this. What if in like papers like this, there is no section where you're allowed to write a conclusion? Hmm. What if like studies instead, I'm just like totally coming off the top, you know, coming up with this off the top of my head. Maybe, maybe someone has already, you know, talked about this, some other, you know, person who studies this type of stuff. But like, what if studies weren't, if, if it was like considered not acceptable to write a conclusion hmm. or even in the abstract, you couldn't give like a top level characterization. What if like you do a study and the only thing you're allowed to print is the table, you know, and figures, and then you, know, you can have text, but it's just merely, you know, describing the data. And there mm. can't be any sort of like characterization of what the data means. Wouldn't, that would be really cool. Oh yeah, and I I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head there. I think that you, you that's exactly what has has happened. I have never thought about this, so it was a, it's it's a really great uh, idea. I'm that, very excited right now. Yeah, this is be the revolution. <laughs> well, and I mean it it is. I think that's exactly what happens when they say the totality of the evidence. What they mean is that they read the headline or they read the like you say the abstract or a two sentence summary of a study. They don't drill down into it and they just go, oh, see, it works, and and that it becomes an ingrained kind of true believer type of thing where they're like, I, I know because I read these, these three sentences from the study, people will do that when they argue with me, they'll send me a study and I'm like, have you read it? Because I did. And here's all the problems with it and why it doesn't show what you think it's, it's showing. And, but it, it, and that would hopefully you could fix a lot of these problems. But of course the problem is that most people wouldn't know how to interpret the tables or, or read the, the underlying data, I think. And, and so it becomes this, uh, you know, it's it's a problem that you still gonna have to have somebody interpret it for a lot of people who aren't going to take the time to read the table or read the data. But, but I, maybe I, the best person to interpret studies, maybe once if this becomes a norm that the authors of the studies, you know, that they're not the ones to write the conclusion. You need mm. like, you know, two or three other people to write the maybe peer review and like, and again, totally outside my depth. So maybe people listening to this are going to think I'm, you know, an asshole, don't know what I'm talking about. But, you know, <laughs> um, with that said, um, what if in, instead of peer review functioning the way it does now, peer review instead would function like, you know, the, the reviewers would offer, you know, suggestions on, you know, things that they, the methodology isn't right or blah, blah, blah. But then part of their role would be they write the conclusion. And then every paper that's published has like two or three conclusions. And those conclusions are written by the reviewers, not by the authors of the study. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, How I, fucking cool I, would that be? I know, that, exactly. That would be amazing. Yeah. And right? I think it would have been a, made a lot of difference in COVID policy, that's for sure. Right. I mean, um, I'm just trying to think through ways to remedy this problem of the like of the sort of editorializing 
of study authors that they put in the abstract or as you said, in the headline or whatever else, um, because that's the problem and people are just reading that. And then, and then I'm sure when you're arguing with those people, Ian, that they're like irritated. Oh, he's like, of course, he's like, gonna like be nitpicking about blah, 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 you know, and they're probably annoyed. Um, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. Like, oh, oh, yeah. Why are you going into all the details? Look, because I think it's fair that a regular person or a regular sort of like, I don't know, you're just like a doctor, just some primary care physician, you look at a study, I think it's fair for them to have a default of, of quote, believing whatever the, an author of a study says. But I, I would say this, we don't even have to ascribe like ill intent to an author. Um, it's just that maybe they're not the best people to, to characterize their own work. You know, like even if they don't have an agenda, I'm just saying mm -hmm. like in general, like there's just going to be certain biases in there and how you want to actually frame this. Um, and so I don't know, I'm just trying to trying to think through like how come whether it's with mass or this other stuff, how can there be some like revisions in, in like norms um, and how things are, are published. I mean, maybe maybe we're focusing too much on the studies. Maybe there's like, you know, other things at play that are more important. I don't know. But that certainly is part of it, right? Um, mm -hmm. so, oh, yeah, I know I think it builds on all of it because the studies influence what they, the public health officials and people like Ashish Jha are saying publicly. And and that's, you know, they're the ones who are, are setting the tone really for, for how the media covers this and for how people think about it, the general public and what policies go into schools and other, other areas of life. So I, it, it kind of is the, we're addressing the root cause, even though it might be the hardest <laughs> cost to fix probably, but it, it, I think it does kind of stem a lot from, from this, this whole circle of, of problems where they don't read the, the conclusion, they don't read the data, they go to the conclusions and then they, they maintain this kind of appeal, uh, this sense of infallibility that they have all of the evidence when they didn't actually read, really read the evidence. Um, we're kind of related. I want to ask you something about it was a different subject because you wrote an article about this last summer. So that was really important. It was about vaccinations for kids and the potential risks of myocarditis. And it kind of ties into your criticizing the CDC and their messaging and, and data. So, you know, tell us what were your, what were your thoughts on the subject? You know, what did you expect to see or what did you find in the piece? And, and have you have your views changed at all over time about this? Yeah. Um, OK, so I've written a few pieces about the vaccines and myocarditis. So there's and there's quite a gap in between them. But my initial piece that I wrote basically was a critique of and this ties, as you said, this sort of dovetails to what we were talking about. It was a critique of how the data is being framed or positioned for people. And the CDC was saying that the incidence of myocarditis was X, and I don't remember the numbers anymore, um, but they're saying it's X out of, you know, whatever, 100,000 or something, right? Um, however, they did something that I, to my mind, was like totally, you know, I shouldn't ascribe intent by saying dishonest, but it was something that was inappropriate, um, which was they grouped males and females together, and they grouped um, you know, kids all the way through, I don't know, age 30 something, I think, or something like that. Um, and so they completely hid the signal amid the noise. And the signal, of course, was if you only look at males between the age of whatever, you know, 16 to 29, then it's an entirely different case. You know, the, the signal's totally different. But then if you just put the males 
together with the females and you go all the way up to age 40 or whatever it may be, whoa, look at this. All of a sudden, the incidence, of course, drops down. So they were completely um, burying the signal. And that deeply, deeply bothered me. And once again, this gets back to my thing where I'm like, do they actually believe what they're doing? Like they, they know what they're doing. Like they know they're doing, it's impossible that that happened accidentally, right? There's yeah. no way that like, you know, and I talked, I interviewed multiple epidemiologists and other people. I'm like, is this normal? And they're like, no, that's not normal. There's no reason to group lots of cohorts together. If you have the actual individual, um, you know, evidence, you know, and data points from these groups on their own. You, why would you, why would you make a less granular, um, you know, um, conclusion than is necessary? No, you want to actually like slice, you know, put this into slices and see which type of people, which cohorts does a certain intervention actually affect in a certain way. There'd be no reason logically to like lump everyone together. Um, so we know that they did this on purpose. And then the question is, why? Why? Mm -hmm. Like, and, 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 you know, the only thing I can conclude is that they felt that, and they still feel that certain policies that they advoc are advocating for are the right thing. And if you have to kind of like fudge it a little bit to, to, to promote, to promote the policy, then that's what you have to do. And they're willing to do that to, um, to, to, you know, it's the means to an end. And they were just willing because they believe that this is a noble good. They believe this is the right thing for every single person to get vaccinated, um, including every young male. And that's it. And, and, and they're willing to kind of like bury this, this inconvenient data that goes against what they believe. I mean, because I mean, look, I don't think these people are like sadists. I don't think that they like want to harm people. I believe that they genuinely think this is the right thing. Um, but I think you just become so captured by a certain tribalism, a certain groupthink. I think within medicine, there is such reverence for vaccines and rightfully so. I mean, vaccines are, you know, amazing <laughs> miracles of medicine that have protected untold numbers of people from all sorts of things. So vaccines are amazing, but you also have to, you know, in the same way that you love your children, you can't just be uncritical about them. You have to, if you really love your child, you also have to be able to see some of their flaws and help them work on those things and become better people. You can love vaccines, but to show that you love vaccines, you also need to be honest when there perhaps is a problem with one, you know, for some people where there actually may be some downsides or maybe the efficacy isn't what, you know, you, you think it is. So that's my attitude. It's like, it's not quote anti-vax to point out problems. In fact, that's, it's pro-vax that shows you actually in the same way that you actually care about, if you didn't give a shit about your son or daughter, you wouldn't care if they were, you know, doing drugs every night and doing, you wouldn't, it didn't matter. They're perfect in every way. No, you care about them. You see them doing something wrong. They didn't study for the test, whatever you point out. And it's kind of similar, I think with, you know, with vaccines, they, they rightfully should have a triumphant place in modern medicine, 
but you also need to be honest um, about what they can and can't do sometimes. It's amazing. And I think that attitude is exactly right. And I, I don't know why it is so an anathema to all these public health bureaucracies to just say that, <laughs> just say those exact words and, and give the full picture instead of just, yeah, just kind of promoting a policy without any nuance. But um, I, uh, I also wanted to ask you because you, you wrote another article. This is back you know, 30 years ago in November of 2020, um, basically doing an investigation on these kind of viral claims from South Dakota that COVID patients on their deathbeds were screaming about, you know, Biden's going to ruin the country. And I, give me, is there magic medicine you can give me? And uh, you did basically actual reporting and actual journalism and, and, and found it essentially wasn't happening. So what I want to ask you about that is, you know, why why, was, why did that go viral? Why was the media so desperate to kind of run with that story? And, and why did you think to kind of check up on it? Uh, yeah, I, I love that article. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought about it in a while. So I, I think, and I'll tell you, it's funny. I have like three other versions, not of that article, but three other like instances where something similar happened. And I almost wrote one of them and I didn't. I was just like, eh, like I could literally, I actually thought about starting a Substack focused entirely on like, these sort of like the highly questionable media, you know, phenomenons, quote unquote, viral stories. And then, um, and then I would debunk them or find out if they're true, you know, but mm -hmm. either way, I would look at something that seems, you know, kind of suspicious because um, they happen often. Right. So I was so, for a little while, I was so into this that I thought about, it still sounds like it might be fun to do, but I'm busy working on the book, but um, I, I you know, with the, 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 was it South Dakota, North Dakota, one of the Dakotas, it was um, South Dakota. Yeah. Right. Yeah. With the nurse, you know, I, I saw the interview on CNN or read the account. I'm like, that seems kind of weird. If someone's intubated, they're probably not going to be talking <laughs> to, mm -hmm. to the nurse, you know, and she, she just had these claims that seemed highly unlikely. So I, you know, and, and the thing that was troubling was, you know, then it, they're covered all over the place. And then when you start digging, you're like, oh, everyone's just repeating what they hear other people, you know, or, or seeing other people write. They're just repeating it. And um, and I got to tell you, I, I mean, journalists are just fucking lazy. A lot of them. <laughs> I mean, that that's that's to be honest, that's that's the only conclusion I can come to is that like and and one of the reasons that I think I'm not lazy. And by the way, it doesn't mean I don't make mistakes. I definitely do make mistakes. And I'm sure I'm even, you know, fall victim to the same type of thing, where maybe I'll see something written somewhere and I haven't fully checked out. So it's not that I'm immune to this, but, um, you know, I started out as a magazine fact checker for many years I was doing that. And partly I, I got into that because that's just my personality. So I already had like a kind of like inclination to do this type of stuff. It's already in my personality. It's like a blessing and a curse <laughs> where I'm always looking for the little granular errors or details in something. But doing that work also really trained me and informed how I think about journalism. And I really think every journalist should have to spend a year as a fact checker, if not five years, you know, five years first before they start. Because the, the main thing that I learned as a fact checker, the main rule was you have to get to the primary source or at least try that merely seeing something written in the New York Times or on NBC News or wherever it may be, merely seeing something written somewhere is not sufficient. We don't know if that's true. So you can't just take someone's word for it. 
So I would have to, if, if something was written about in an article, that was not enough. No, I'd have to go to the web, you know, if it was, I don't know, some dumb example, but it was for like a, a company with a product. And then I couldn't just look up a review of the product in a, in a magazine. No, I need to go to the company's website because go to the source. And even that, oftentimes I'm like, well, the website could be outdated. Maybe the person who put the stuff on the website's wrong. So oftentimes I get on the phone. Let me call the company. Is this like widget that you make? Does it actually cost a hundred dollars? And does it actually do X, Y, and Z? Because this, you know, New York Times article says one thing, your website says something else. So that process of always trying to go to the primary source of, of any sort of like claim, um, just like deeply, deeply informs how I try to work as a journalist and quite honestly, like how I function in the world. Um, and I'm always, and I'm sure it annoys the shit out of like some doctors when I see them as a patient or if I'm with my kids at the pediatrician's office, or if I'm meeting with an, a lawyer about something, I'm always asking questions. And I'm always, you know, it doesn't mean I'm being disrespectful about something, you know, and, and it's not that I, I just am constantly never trusting people, but if there's something that, that I'm unaware of or uninformed about, I ask them, well, wait, oh, you're saying this does X. Well, oh, can you tell me what, what, you know, study shows that, or have you, has there been a randomized trial on this? Like, where do you get this from? So I'm just always trying to go to the source. And so this, you know, the South Dakota nurse thing, I call up um, the hospital where she works. And I spoke to several people there and I'm like, Hey, have you had this experience where, mo you know, multiple patients are on their deathbed and they're saying, you know, I, I don't remember what the quotes were, but it's like this, I, I recant, this was all, you know, I should have <laughs> listened. It's real. Why did I think it wasn't real? You know, have you had that experience? And each of them said, no. So now that doesn't mean that the woman is lying. It doesn't mean it's untrue, but it's certainly casts her claims in a different light. It certainly reframes them as either A, maybe they're not true, or B, even if they are true, it then suggests that they are an anomaly. You know, it suggests this is just an anecdote and it's not worth um, reporting on. So that, that that's the thing. You have to go to the source and you have to find out if something is an anecdote or if something is even true to begin with. Yeah, and unfortunately it feels like like you say, a lot of journalists are lazy and then they're, they're just not doing that these days. And it, it leads to this kind of a snowball effect, I think, where people have a, a get a misperception of what what people are actually saying out there. But um, so I, I and I just got a couple more questions for you. And one was actually kind of about fact checking. So it's, it's a good timing for that. Um, I, I was fact checked once myself. I think it was Snopes. I can't remember what, but it was basically, uh, you know, it was a chart I post about. I think it was Vermont and the person that did the fact check didn't read the chart, didn't read the tweet. And so got several details in the fact check wrong. Um, and I, which I pointed out a little Twitter thread, but it's so, you know, wh where does this go with fact checking? Uh, Cause I think there's a big difference between a distinction between fact checking as you were doing it as part of journalism and fact checking the way that it's being done today um, and how that's kind of used to, censor opinions. I mean, you, you know, censor opinions on Facebook. If you had criticized school masking, they could have censored you for that on, on Facebook or Twitter. So but where does, where does we go with fact checking from here? Is it, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And how can it be fixed? Or is it, you know, broken beyond all repair? What do you, what do you think? Yeah, that is, that is an awesome question. So, right. First of all, you're totally right. The, the, this idea there's like these various like fact checking websites and the, you know, I think there's one of them like 
truth facts. I don't, I don't know what they're called, but there's like, there's a bunch of them, including Snopes, which has been around forever. Um, and once you make something sort of public like that, um, it's no longer just this function of like me in, you know, a cubicle somewhere working behind the scenes, just trying to make sure everything in an article is correct. Like I have no agenda. Like I, I don't care if, you know, an article written about some guy, some travel piece about a guy who's, you know, in Florence, Italy, or something, you know, in the hotel. Like I, 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 have, I have no skin in the game. I don't care. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to make something true or not true. I just want to know how long does it take to drive from, you know, Rome to Florence or whatever, you know, like, okay, I'm going to look up it on the map, whatever. I just want to know the information. That's very different from, unfortunately, clearly people have an opinion. They have an agenda. Um, and, and let's, let's be charitable. It may not even be conscious these sort of biases, you know, maybe the person at Snopes wasn't consciously trying to, to mischaracterize, you know, what you had done, but just this person's own biases were there. Um, so I think having these sort of like public facing fact checking, um, you know, uh, dashboards or websites and stuff, I, I think are largely bullshit. It doesn't mean that their fact checks are wrong. And sometimes they could provide really valuable information so maybe bullshit's not the right characterization of it, but it, but it's ultimately they're probably not helpful because they have people have skin in the game. Like let's not pretend that you know most of the media, you know, are not of a certain political persuasion, and even beyond politics, people don't want m- most people are not. Here's the thing, and this is my opinion: most people are not comfortable being outside of their group, whatever their group is. And it's like, so it's even beyond sort of like, you know, the politics, it's just a matter of like, like, here's what like most of my, what I believe most of my colleagues think, here's what I believe, you know, it seems like it's being written about all these other places. Boy, that's going to be really hard for that person to then do a fact check on your, um, you know, chart that you put out that you may have tweeted or whatever. On some like level, I think for most people, unfortunately, that's something that's really hard to override, either consciously or not consciously. Um, for better or for worse, and it's not that I'm totally immune to this. For whatever reason, I just I'm okay with 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 being on the outskirts. I feel like I've never been in a group. Um, I'm you know I'm an independent journalist. It would be nice to be on staff somewhere, but there's probably a reason why I've never really pursued that. I kind of like never have felt like I'm in a group. And although for most of my adult life, I've held, I think, what would generally be considered um, sort of classic liberal views, though, you know, which is which I would differentiate from the sort of more current sort of like woke political views, but kind of um, trying to help poor people in certain ways or whatever. Um, you know, I care very much about the environment. Um I didn't care at all about like saying something different from what they all were saying. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, the first piece I wrote on saying like the the school should open was in the first week of May. Um, I think it was the first week, maybe it was May 9th or something. But, uh, and you know, that was like, and I was nervous because, but not nervous because I, thought I was wrong or not nervous because maybe I wouldn't be liked or something just because I was nervous that I knew there it's weird and uncomfortable to go against a a narrative 
Like that's, that's hard, or at least it is for me. Like, so the funny thing is like, I'm constantly (laughs) investigating and publishing things against the, the sort of mainstream or accepted narrative. But yet I, but yet I, take no pleasure in that. It's actually causes me like an incredible amount of anxiety <laughs> doing it. So it's not that I, it, I'm not, nor am I sort of like a Republican operative, you know, who's just like motivated to like stick it to the libs. It's like, so it's like, I actually feel discomfort each of these things. When I was like looking at this Arizona mass study, I felt like literally sick inside. I had a migraine like multiple nights because I couldn't fucking believe like what I was finding. Like I didn't want this to happen, but time and again, I just keep looking at the evidence and I'm like, the evidence seems to show that if you're a young male between the ages of like 16 and 29 or whatever it is, and like you've already had COVID and maybe you've already had one dose of the vaccine, it's probably reasonable for you not to get a second dose. Like Mm -hmm. that's that's just simply what the fucking data shows. And if you look at many other countries, they also, their, their public health officials seem to share that view. So that's how I know. That's how most of these things, by the way, how I know I'm not crazy on these things is that if no one else in the world said this, I'd be more nervous. I don't have that much confidence (laughs) in my, in my, uh, you know, ability to be objective and view things. But the fact that other countries so often have agreed with the general positions that I've been arguing and sort of seem to interpret the data in the same way that I've been interpreting it suggests to me that like, okay, I'm not crazy. So I think that gave me confidence to, to continue to do these pieces. But, you know, getting back to, to Ashish again, you know, in that congressional testimony, he said, he's like, there is, I, I think he used the word consensus, um, or he said something's effective, like, I'm not aware of anyone who's against this. And I'm like, I never got a chance to speak again at, at the hearing, unfortunately, but I was like, you know, like clenching my fist. I was like, mm. have you heard of Europe, sir? <laughs> you know, like, they all seem to be interpreting the data differently than you are. And, you know, like they seem to have a different value judgment than you. How can you possibly, how can you say this, that there's a consensus on thinking the value of wearing masks in schools is a good idea when there are tens of millions of children in Europe not doing it? Their public health officials think differently. It's not that Mm -hmm. they're saying, quote, masks don't work, but they certainly came up with a different value judgment about whether this policy makes sense or not. So it's just like, it's, I I don't know, all this stuff is just, I'm just utterly fascinated by the sort of psychological dynamics at play and how all of these things happen and what makes people do what they do. You know what I'm saying? Like that to me is just the part, at least for me, that's what I'm always thinking about. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. Um, And uh, it kind of is related to the, the last question I had for you. And I think it kind of ties in a lot of what we've been talking about, but you know, looking back at the at the early days of the pandemic, I think, you know, obviously with, with Donald Trump being president, I think it led to a lot of different reactions from media and from public health officials because obviously they, a lot of them did not like him. So what do you think would have been different if we'd had a different, maybe less polarizing president? And do you think that we would have the same outcomes, whether that's 
you know, the metrics or the response as far as school closures and masking, you know, would that have been different if there had been uh, uh, somebody else was president at that point? Well, I guess I can say whatever I want because no one can prove me wrong because it's impossible <laughs> to know. <clears throat> but um, I suspect that schools would not have been closed in the manner that they were. I have to suspect we would probably more closely have mirrored what Europe, most of Europe did. It doesn't mean we wouldn't have made a whole bunch of terrible mistakes because Europe hasn't been perfect either by any stretch. Mm -hmm. um, but at least my area of focus, when I'm thinking about schools, I think there would have been less hysteria about it because Trump, you know, and this is kind of a common thing, you know, now amongst, you know, people like ourselves, Ian, is that like everyone knows this to be the case, or at least we all believe it to be the case. Again, it's impossible to prove, but um, that Trump said X. And if you are a liberal, your brain says, well, then Y must be true. If he says black, I have to say white. And, you know, this is a cliche, but even a broken clock is right twice a day. And, um, you know, just because Trump likes vanilla ice cream does not mean that vanilla ice cream is bad. Like you're allowed <laughs> to like it too. And, you know, just because Trump through, I don't, it's through no vision or wisdom of, of his own that he, you know, wanted the economy open or, you know, and schools open. I don't think it's because he's wise or I don't think it's because he really cares about people. That was, you know, he has his own reasoning for whatever it is for the stuff that he says. But nevertheless, he was largely correct. But that is so unacceptable to so many people, you know, um, that that they just couldn't tolerate having a position. And and the and the thing that's so frustrating is this guy, some guy at like it's like the New York City NPR. Um, affiliate. It's like the flagship kind of like, you know, public radio station. Um, and they have this website, um, Gothamist that's affiliated with it. And he wrote this big takedown against me. Um, and like, the funny thing is, um, this, this is why I think it's more than just me believing that this is the case about Trump. I think that it's this, what this guy wrote to me, I think gives evidence to the fact that it's true that he wrote this series of questions where he's like, you know, when did you, did you write this article for, it was almost like I was in court, you know, did you write an article for New York magazine on such and such a day? And one, and one of the things was, um, it was, um, did you publicly support an op-ed written by Scott Atlas, a known purveyor of misinformation? Did you or did you not? You know, and so, and, and so, you know, I think my answer was like, I have no fucking idea. Maybe, you know, like it's possible in 2020, you know, of whatever of October that I clicked the like button or maybe I even tweeted something by it. And I was just like, maybe he, he I said he must have written something that I agreed with, I guess, you know, like, who the fuck cares? So the thing that um, was fascinating was that in his mind, this was like a gotcha. Like he, this is someone who works for public radio for the like main, you know, I believe it's the, the largest, you know, or the most uh, important public radio station in the country. It's in New York City. And he's actually grilling another journalist for publicly supporting some sort of op-ed by someone because that guy is a quote, bad guy. Like mm. he didn't, 
this is a very important point to note. He did not link to whatever my public support was. He did not give a link to the state. You know, so number one, I don't know what I did or said, whether I just clicked a like button, whether I actually wrote something. So that's number one. Number two, nor did he actually give me a link to the actual thing that Atlas wrote. So I have no idea on any realm. I had no idea what he was referring to. Um, so, um, so what's interesting is like he used that as a thing, this sort of like guilt by association. And I think now I'm actually, as I talk this out with you, I think I actually, I'm granted it's like an N of one, you know, it's an anecdote, <laughs> but this certainly seems to support the idea that it's not just us guessing that liberals were doing a lot of this stuff because it was, you know, that. Um, seen as the antithesis to Trump, you know, that they had to take the opposite. But like this guy's questions to me, I think at least, you know, as an anecdotally prove that this is how they think. That mm. to him, it was so incriminating to say you gave support to something. I'm not going to tell you what the thing is, but you gave support <laughs> to something that this guy did. And what do you have to say about that? And I'm just like, who gives it? Again, I just think of the like, Donald Trump likes vanilla ice cream. Is it true that you like vanilla ice cream? <laughs> so that, and it's, this is the, the most anti-intellectual, the most just like, you know, just, just totally intellectually bankrupt way of thinking. And what's remarkable is you have journalists at incredibly prestigious, um, you know, uh, outlets in our country, you have academics, people with PhDs, you have, you know, these people in the professional class who all seem to be completely captured by this guilt by association mindset. They're so terrified, both publicly, even if I think some of them privately agree with something, but they just don't want to say it publicly. And I think a lot of them even privately in their, their brain as like a defense mechanism is like, Trump says X, me must say Y. That I think there, and by the way, I'm sure that there are people you know, right-wing people where it's the exact same phenomenon. They're like, oh, Bernie Sanders says this, it must be wrong. You know, so I, I, I don't, I don't want to exclusively, this is certainly not only, you know, um, sort of, you know, going in one direction. I'm sure it happens in both ways. But boy, how fascinating is that, that like both people know something on the inside, but they don't want to say it publicly. And I guarantee there are people, it's not even the public facing thing, it's in their mind. They cannot tolerate the idea it, this, it's so odious to imagine that you might agree with this bad person on something. I, yeah. I, for whatever reason, I just have no problem with that. Mm. Yes, I can think Trump is a piece of garbage lunatic and also think that he happens to be right on a few things. That's okay. Like, yeah. I don't care. Yeah, unfortunately, I feel like that attitude is uh, almost completely disappeared. It feels everything's just very, very polarized. Um, you know, it's like Liana Wen, who I've disagreed with almost everything on. You know, she's she's making a lot of sense to some of the things that she says now. It's like, well, you know, she she was wrong before, and at least she's saying the right thing now. But anyway, uh, David, thank you so much for all your time. Thank you for for all the the great conversation, the great answers. Um, uh, you can follow David on Twitter. It's uh, David Zweig. And, and also you have the, the website, which is davidzweig.com, which I think you have a compilation of a lot of the articles you've written. And obviously we'll, uh, we'll look forward to, it's called An Abundance of Caution, right? The, the book coming out. 
Yes, an abundance of caution. Although we're, I'm thinking about, do you think it's better to call it out of an abundance of caution or just an abundance of caution? It's still, it's still I, uh, unknown right now. <laughs> I, I, I think I like just an abundance of caution. A little tighter. Yeah, that's yeah. what, I, that's what I'm uh, leaning toward. It'll be a couple years. Oh, I should also say I haven't written anything for you yet, but I also have a Substack. But oh, great. Um, where people can just sign up on. I, I, I don't know how you find it. I guess if you go to like Substack, like slash David Zweig or whatever it is. Um, but yes, yeah, so you can find me on Twitter or on Substack or go to my website. Send me an email. I talked. I try to talk to everybody. I get a lot of emails. It takes me a while, but I try to respond to everyone. So I'm always happy to hear from people. Fantastic. Uh, well, thank you again, David. Everybody, check out David's writing. He's it's done really amazing, amazing work. So appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Ian. I continue to love you know watching all of your tweets and i think one of the <laughs> tweets i did i was like this is an homage <laughs> to, i was like look he owns this genre but like you know once in a while i do it myself because it's it's um it's so fun oh can i end with one fun yeah. thing remember like there's also the opposite of your thing which is like the, the stupid revert where i think like paul krugman or some others they like tweet through like where they put the arrow and they're like mass taken off and then you see the like you know the cases go up and it, it's a very funny thing and i'm like yes but you also didn't note that that's when they opened up bars and restaurants and took away everything else right. you just wrote masks removed there so yeah. there's there's a very funny sort of like antithesis to everything you're doing it's like <laughs> the bizarro world bad version of what you're doing <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, again, everybody, please check out David's writing and uh, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to the book. Thanks, Ian.